Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Sarah, the Editorial Assistant at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by Ethan Zuckerman, a leading academic, author, blogger, podcaster, public speaker and all-round internet expert, who is the founder of the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. In his regular column for Prospect, How to Fix the Internet, Zuckerman deftly addresses the big questions in ethics and technology in a way that those of us who don't know our blockchain from our big data or our cryptocurrency from our NFTs can understand. In his most recent column, Improving the Algorithm, Zuckerman explains how artificial intelligence can perpetuate existing biases and inequalities in our societies and asks an important question. What if our response to AI bias wasn't just to fix the computers, but the society that trains them? Ethan, thanks so much for joining us. So, to kick off, we know that algorithms are constantly shaping our lives, from our social media apps to controversially during the pandemic, our children's exam grades. But many of us, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, don't fully understand how they work and what they are. Can you explain what artificial intelligence is, and more specifically, what algorithms do? Sure. Artificial intelligence has changed form quite sharply in the last 10 or 15 years. Up until perhaps 15, 20 years ago, artificial intelligence was usually what we called rule-based systems. We would tell computers to follow a particular set of rules, And based on those rules, they would make decisions that would allow it to play chess or process a medical claim or do other things that humans normally do. About 15 years ago, we hit a point where computers became so powerful that we could use a different form of artificial intelligence, which is usually referred to as machine learning. This is a method that uses lots of math and lots of statistics, but what it really does is it learns from human behavior, and it's able to sort of extrapolate from human decisions to train a machine to make its own decisions. So let's give an example of this. Human beings are very, very good at detecting objects in photographs. You've almost certainly encountered something online where someone has said, to prove that you are not a robot, show us all the images that have chimneys in them. 
what you are doing at that point is training an artificial intelligence to detect a chimney. You are creating a training data set that has images that have a chimney in them and images that don't have a chimney in them. And that gets fed into a computer and it comes up with an algorithm. An algorithm is just a set of rules, but in this case, it's a set of rules that allows a computer to look at an image and say, chimney, not chimney. That sounds like a trivial example, but when you put all those things together, that's really what's going on with um, a, an automated vehicle driving on the streets of London. It is making thousands of decisions every second, pedestrian, not pedestrian, other car, not other car. Um, and it's doing it based on data that in many cases, humans have fed and allowed the algorithm uh, to be trained to, to make a decision about uh, what is and what is not an obstacle. That's so interesting. And I've heard a phrase about machine learning and, and you've made it much more understandable to me even in that. But I've heard a phrase that has really concerned me as somebody on the outside of, you know, not in the tech world, that is about black box AI, where machine learning models produce insights that the human at the other end, who's using those insights to inform whatever process they're taking part in, has no way of understanding what the model did to generate them. It becomes an impenetrable closed black box system. What does this mean for us? And should we be worried about it? Or can we understand it and it's safe and it's fine? Sure. So let's use it again with our example of driving through London in an automated car. If I was trying to tell you, here is how you identify a pedestrian, I would say a pedestrian is a human being. Um, they are walking. Um, usually uh, they are walking unaccompanied, but maybe sometimes they have a bicycle or maybe sometimes they're on crutches or maybe sometimes they have a walker. I, I would be offering sort of rules for how you might determine what a pedestrian is. That's not how the algorithm is programmed. The algorithm instead has looked at thousands of images of things that are different forms of pedestrians and thousands of things that are not pedestrians. And it has come up with its own set of rules as far as what set of pixels, what in an image says that is this is a pedestrian or is not a pedestrian. If you asked the computer to explain itself, what are the rules that you are using to determine what is and what isn't a pedestrian, those rules would not be understandable to you and me. They would have to do with light and dark and gradients and pixels in one position and probabilities, and they simply wouldn't make any sense. Um, they might be highly accurate. They might be very, very good at determining who or who is not a pedestrian, but they would not be what we refer to as an explainable AI. And this is where people get quite concerned. So let's go back to uh, the example of exam grading. Um, you have an artificially intelligent algorithm grading exams. Suddenly some exams come up and uh, they're more favorable than people think they should be, or they're less favorable than people think they should be. We all want to know what's going on inside the algorithm. For many types of machine learning, there's no good way to answer the question, 
what's going on in terms of the algorithm. We can say this is the data that it was trained on. We can say this was the technique used to train it. But we can't actually say anything very meaningful about what rules the algorithm is following. There are a number of people who look at this and say, look, non-explainable AI perhaps is fine for certain things. Maybe it's okay if we translate using Google Translate and we cannot explain entirely what the rules are going on in play. But when it comes to real um, critical decisions about do you get a bank loan? Um, did you pass your driver's license examination? Uh, what are your exam grades? Perhaps we should only be able to use explainable AI where we can come in and sort of look at things and say, oh yes, that's a fair way to do this, or that is in fact not a fair way to do this. I see. So does that create a kind of paradox in some ways? Because as you wrote in your piece, at their best, these systems can outperform the best trained humans. But if we also need to know that we can understand them, are we torn between an opportunity to use what could be more accurate, better decision makers than ourselves in really, really important areas of our lives and being able to understand exactly what they're doing and know that they're safe? So this question of explainable AI is a hot topic within the field of AI right now. There are many people who will say, you simply want machine learning to be as accurate as it possibly can be. And you have to accept the fact that machines construct algorithms differently than humans construct algorithms. There's other people who say, until we get to explainable AI, until we get to AI where we can say, here's what's going on inside the black box, people simply aren't going to be willing to use it for certain types of decisions. The example you gave that, that came from the piece, I started the piece talking about a system that is capable of looking at scans of people's lungs and detecting tumors with 95% accuracy. And this is phenomenally higher than the level of accuracy that a, that a really talented human radiologist uh, can detect a tumor with. So this is a system that is quite literally now saving people's lives. So we would look at this and say, well, maybe we don't need a huge amount of information about how this algorithm is making these decisions so long as it's simply at a very high level of accuracy. But here's a flip side to this. What if we discover that this system is incredibly accurate on everybody but uh, people of African origin, black people? Uh, at that point, we might start interrogating this and saying, there's something quite wrong here. We don't want to have a system that provides benefits for one group of people and not for another group of people. Perhaps we need explainability sort of associated with this. So yes, absolutely. Right now, there's this possibility of trade-off uh, between the two. Um, do we go for forms of artificial intelligence that are more explainable? Are we okay with artificial intelligence that has apparently high social benefit, um, but might not be fair and also might not be explicable to us? 
And I think that really cuts to one of the major issues that you explored in your piece, which was what happens when these algorithms that are learning and extrapolating from the way that we behave also learn to behave in the biased ways that human beings and human societies behave, especially when the data sets that feed into those algorithms are not themselves representative. You write in your piece that you first learnt about algorithmic bias from your then master's student, Joy Boulam-Winnie, a Ghanaian-American computer scientist who founded the Algorithmic Justice League, an organisation which uses art and research to highlight the racism, sexism, ableism and other harmful form forms of discrimination that AI can perpetuate. Could you tell me a little bit more about Joy's research, about your experience when she was studying with you, um, and what she found out? Sure. Well, let me start by saying that Dr. Bolamwini has done an utterly enormous amount of work, uh, even in the course of doing her doctoral degree. And so um, anytime I tell stories about her, I have to be very careful about the fact that I'm only talking about a small part of her work. I chose to feature a very early part of her work in my column for The Prospect um, because it was a very compact and powerful illustration uh, of the ways in which some of these algorithms can fail. She was building a piece of software that needed to detect her face. It needed just to determine where her face was so that it could uh, tell a, a computer program where to draw some graphics on the screen. And she ended up discovering that this algorithm really couldn't detect her face, but it detected uh, some of her colleagues' faces just fine. And she has a video that she shared quite widely in which this algorithm is able to detect an Asian American colleague's face. It won't see hers until she puts on a featureless white mask. And this is really stunning, right? We go from seeing a human face that the machine cannot see to this very inhuman featureless white mask, but suddenly uh, the machine is able to, to see her face. And she ended up, as part of her master's project, trying to figure out why this had happened. She ended up evaluating some commercial um, facial recognition systems. These were systems that tried to determine the gender of a face. In this early work, um, Dr. Bull and Winnie is working with Dr. Timnit Gebru, and they are analyzing three commercial gender classifiers. These are machine learning systems that look at an image. They, of course, first have to detect that there is a face in the image, and then they are making a judgment whether a face is male or female. What they end up finding are that these classifiers all perform better on male faces than on female faces. They all perform better on lighter faces than darker faces. And there is an intersectional bias, which is to say that they perform the most poorly on faces of dark-skinned women. When they go and analyze what's going on here, Part of what happens is that these classifiers have been trained on data sets that are overwhelmingly white and male. And so they will consistently perform best on white male faces. They will not perform as well on female faces or darker skinned faces. They will perform very badly on darker female faces. 
This is not the only thing that can go wrong with an artificial intelligence algorithm. Dr. Bolomwini's work looks at lots of different ways that algorithms can be inaccurate, but this is one fairly straightforward way that we can understand a problem with a data set. If you train a system on a certain set of data, and then you give the system data that is far outside of the set of training data, it will not perform well. And this is a good demonstration of the fact that a system trained predominantly on white male faces is not able to extrapolate accurately over to dark female faces. When we're thinking about the scale of AI, you know, becoming really, really entrenched in our in our day-to-day -day lives, are there any other examples of where AI is going to entrench the biases that we see in society and the systemic discrimination that we see in our societies? So one of the ways that people often react to this research and sort of say, well, facial detection or facial classification systems perform more poorly on dark skin, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we don't want to be seen by cameras. It's a bit of a flip response, although it's not unreasonable. But here's uh, a piece of research that, that might make you think twice about this. There's a team led by Benjamin Wilson down at the Georgia Institute of Technology that looked at systems, self-driving car systems, and found that these systems are better at detecting white pedestrians than at darker skinned pedestrians. What this would mean if you can't find a way of correcting this bias is that self-driving cars would be more likely to hit people with darker skin uh, than people with lighter skin. And that's the sort of terrifying thing that could be baked into these systems. Um, you really do want to make sure that before systems are deployed out in the world where they could actually harm people, uh, that they don't have racial biases baked into them based on training them with one set of data and not with another set of data. And you write about another example in your piece that is um, almost a step on from that, from what I understand, which is the compass algorithm that was used in Florida to calculate risk scores for criminal defendants, which was found to be routinely um, discriminating against black defendants. Um, my question is, what happened there? And also... Is it ever right to use algorithms in these kinds of incredibly sensitive areas that affect people's fundamental rights, um, like the criminal justice system? So this um, is a piece of research done by the really marvelous Julia Ongwin. And she looks at this system called COMPASS, Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. This is what's called a decision support tool. The idea is that it is supposed to help people in the court system decide whether or not to release someone on bail. And the theory behind this is you look at certain aspects of the person's background, you look at where they live, you look at what jobs they've held, and you try to make a judgment about whether they are likely to reoffend. Um, the theory behind this, you know, keep in mind, this is a system built in the United States where uh, we incarcerate an alarming number of people. The theory behind this is um, perhaps someone should be allowed to get cash bail 
uh, to put money down to say that they will make their court appearance. But depending on the likelihood of them committing another crime during the period where they were released, a judge might decide, no, we're not going to release this person on bail. Um, Julia Ongwen led a team that did a study of this algorithm, looked into it, and essentially was able to say this algorithm believes that black people are much, much more likely to reoffend than white people. When they looked at people who had been assessed by the system, white people were most likely to be given the lowest risk category, whereas black people are equally assigned across all of the different risk categories. This raises some immediate questions, which is to say, is there racial bias built into the system? The authors of the Compass system said, well, there can't be racial bias. We're not actually looking at race. It's not one of the factors that comes into play. Ongwin and her team were able to say, what you're having is disproportionate impact. What you're basically doing is making it less likely that a black person will be released on bail. That, therefore, is a biased system. Here's where it gets really complicated. It may be that the system, in a strict sense, is accurate. In the United States, it is much more likely that a black person is going to have an encounter with police than a white person. Um, there is an enormous racial bias in policing in the United States. And communities of color have far more police officers in them. People are routinely arrested at very different rates for the same crimes. There's quite good evidence in the United States that black and white people use drugs at approximately the same level, but that black people are much more likely to be arrested for drug offenses. So in terms of actually predicting, is a person more likely to be rearrested for a crime, Compass may in fact be accurate. In terms of being fair, which is to say it is way more likely to say that a black person is going to reoffend and therefore that they're not going to be given bail, it is clearly an unfair system. But this is what takes us to the heart of this question. The problem, to a certain extent, is the compass algorithm. You have an algorithm which is basically taking this racial bias in society and it is entrenching it into code. And this does things that are very scary. When you bake these biases into code, they become very hard to interrogate. We might look at a judge and say, this judge is racist. They don't give bail to black people. But now judges are able to say, I'm just following what the compass algorithm had to say. Now, to be very clear, the people who write compass challenge Ongwin's reporting on this. But... I don't think that challenge has been particularly effective. Um, basically, they have not been able to demonstrate um, why Onglin was able to show these deeply disparate results um, for white and black offenders. The issue has gone to court. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that Compass can be considered by judges during sentencing. Um, I think many courts have realized that this tool has the possibility of baking in biases, but this is still an open issue in the United States about whether algorithms like this should be able to be used in the court. My response on this would be, 
you absolutely do not want to use algorithms like this if there is any doubt that they have a racial bias built into them. I think beyond that, it is a very, very good reason to ask questions about who benefits and who is harmed when you start using a tool like this one. The problem is, I do not believe it is as simple as just fixing the compass algorithm. There is no good data to fix it with. If you wanted to train a system, remember we talked at the beginning of this interview about training systems by showing it human decisions, the human decisions in this case are being made by a justice system that has a strong racial bias associated with it. And so if you don't find some way to get over those strong racial biases, it's very hard to know how you would trade, uh, train a safe system. That is really fascinating, and I think it points to your radical um, argument in this piece. Well, <laughs> radical may be a strong word for it, but really interesting argument that, you know, perhaps examining these questions about bias in our AI should lead us to be examining questions about our societies and making them fairer. And uh, I hope I'm not um, misinterpreting your piece, but I kind of felt that there was an argument that we should be taking these questions as a springboard or a road to lead us to address the bigger issues in our societies. How would that actually work and how could examining these tools lead us to actually build fairer societies, not only in the algorithm, but in our in our day to day real lives, if that's the right word. Well, that's it. exactly what I'm arguing. Um, what I'm arguing is that there's an enormous debate right now in technical and academic circles about AI and fairness. What does it mean for an algorithm to be fair? What does it mean for it to be biased? Can we tweak an algorithm that we know to have some biases in it and make it more fair? What I am suggesting is that discovering a world in which algorithms are often unfair because they're extrapolating from data in the real world should be sort of an enormous wake-up call to us. What we're basically finding is not just that the algorithms are wrong, it's that the world is wrong. When we encounter a problem like Compass, the response shouldn't just be, be very careful using these AI systems, they're broken. We should also be looking at it and saying, and by the way, so is criminal justice in America. And, and that, you know, seems like a point that actually many, many people can agree on. In some ways, what's happening is it feels much easier to solve a technological problem than it is to solve a societal problem. We look at this and say, well, let's not use the biased facial recognition algorithm the answer might actually be, why are we putting so many communities under surveillance? You know, let's not use the biased um, uh, bail algorithm. Maybe the answer is we simply shouldn't be imprisoning so many people and we shouldn't be supporting justice systems that have such strong racial biases behind them. One of the things I'm very interested in is what problems feel fixable and what problems feel unfixable. And I worry that we may be getting to the point in society where large social problems often feel unfixable, and so we settle for solving technological problems. I think in many of these cases, 
the problems that people like Angwin are raising are not technological problems. They are social problems that demand widespread social solutions. And I'm sort of hoping that this fascination with AI might get us to look and say, the problem here is not technical. The problem is a much broader social problem. If we imagine that we were able to eradicate these social problems um, which and, and create this kind of utopia, then it would be safe to use algorithms. But while we're in this journey of trying to address the social problems, where do the algorithms fit? And what are the useful questions until we get to the point that the algorithms can learn from a society that is fair and is just a kind of utopian point? Well, that's why I started the piece specifically with talking about algorithms that are literally saving lives and doing things that humans cannot do right now. Um, the example of the tumor detection algorithm not only is helping people getting lung treatment earlier, it's also potentially helpful for people in areas where there is not uh, a trained radiologist who can read these uh, image scans. Uh, the whole idea that someone could get access to world-class healthcare wherever they are in the world, that to me feels like the sort of good that we should be trying to defend. So if it were as easy as saying the advantages of AI are really minor, let's not use this until we can get to more fair and equitable systems, that would be one thing. But that's not the case. Um, there are many, many cases where AI is doing something that's genuinely useful. I think what we first have to do is say, how do we evaluate these algorithms? And I think one of the first things that we need to do is find a good, consistent way to try these algorithms on a variety of different populations and make sure that there is no group of people that is being unfairly discriminated against or unfairly harmed in the use of these algorithms. If we are finding cases where a group is being harmed by the use of these algorithms, we should then really interrogate, should that algorithm be used as long as it is contributing to that point of unfairness? I also think there are other classes of problems where we should be asking the question, is the right answer to make this system more efficient or is the problem the system in the first place? And I think for me, that is the problem associated with Compass. I'm not sure that making it more efficient to incarcerate people in the United States is actually to anyone's advantage. We know that the problems with that system are so severe and so pervasive that maybe the response is that people who work on artificial intelligence should simply be refusing to entrench the unfairness of that system within code. Um, some of the researchers that I admire the most are responding to certain questions in artificial intelligence through what they call principled refusal. They are looking at things and saying, this system is simply unfair how it is being implemented at the moment. We are not going to lock it into code the way that we would do through machine learning. That is absolutely fascinating. It's, it's kind of the political end of artificial intelligence. And I think my final question on this is about that. 
is is there an issue here of what are essentially political questions and political problems being examined in a realm that is highly technical that not enough people have a grasp on or understand and and when i say not enough people i mean people like me people who are not who've got no background in coding no background in um computing that kind of look and put this in the too difficult box how do we get more people involved in these conversations and ensure that those political elements don't get lost in a, a sea of technological jargon almost every field ends up creating some sort of a priesthood there's this idea that you can only participate in discussions if you know the jargon the concepts the language etc etc and certainly the world of artificial intelligence has gone far down this road. You will hear lots of these debates about systems where technical people will respond by saying, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't understand um, the, the insides of these learning algorithms, therefore you can't have an opinion about this. I think what's really important to understand is that artificial intelligence applied to real world systems is not just a technological system, it's what we call a techno-social system. It has a technical component to it and it has a social component to it. And the people who need to make decisions about these systems need a combination of technical knowledge but also social knowledge. What's happening in many cases is that the decisions about these systems are often being made by people who have strong technical knowledge but not very strong social or political knowledge. What we actually need is a group of people who are very strong on both sides of the equation, um, who are both smart enough about how the technology works, but also smart enough about those social biases and what's associated with them. Until we get to the point where we have lots of those people, what we need are teams. We need people to figure out how to work together. We need people who understand the biases of the criminal justice system and the way that racial biases get baked into it to talk with the people who are building the technical algorithms so that they can work together to look for ways in which these algorithms are likely to harm people and try to figure out how to prevent them from harming people. Thank you so much, Ethan, for joining us today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all from us. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect Magazine available on newsstands now or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. In your copy, you can read Ethan's fantastic column as well as writing from Jeanette Winterson, Archbishop Justin Welby and Rachel Sylvester. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next time. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? 
Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.